But what I wanted to do is kind of get us refocused. What I'm going to speak about this morning, we already do really well. All right. And so I just want to encourage you with that. And um, but there's a lot of us that are new. There's a lot of us wondering, you know, what's the fall going to look like and that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to steer us uh, a bit in the next two weeks. We're going to steer us towards what's going to happen as we kick off the series on the 20th. And this morning, the title is The Danger of Spectator Itis. Right. That's a a weird word. And uh, but in Ephesians 2.10, it says this, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to give uh, Larry Peabody, he's an author and a blogger, credit because he found this term spectatoritis from uh, another famous pastor named Elton Trueblood. Many of you would recognize that name. He said, all of us suffer from a terrible sickness in our churches. It's called spectatoritis. And uh, if you look at what it means to be a spectator, a spectator is an excessive indulgence in forms of amusement in which one is a passive spectator rather than an active participant. Just think about what we can view electronically today as compared to 30 years ago. Remember 30 years ago? Remember when... Some of you are smiling. You remember that? Remember when the TV went off at midnight? Right? The national anthem played, the TV went off, and then 6 o'clock in the morning came back on, and you had ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was it, baby. Right? And if you go past 30 years, it was black and white, not color. That was the only options you had. Nowadays, you have unbelievable... Matter of fact, I look on our TV, there's so many channels, like, how could you even go through the channels, let alone watch anything on there? I mean, it's un... What are these channels for? I don't even know. But it, we have an, a massive ability to be spectators now, to not actually do anything, just to watch. You could spend your whole life just watching. And that's a great danger that Scripture warns about. So I want to be able to take a look at that. Of course, the great analogy for that, right, is right around the corner. It's football season, and two weeks the whole shebang begins, right? Momentum's building, everybody's excited, uh, fantasy football leagues are rocking, the countdown begins. And on Sunday, uh, September 20th, so two Sundays from now, we're going to do uh, Jersey Sunday, like uh, Zach was saying. And I just want to tell you, it doesn't have to be NFL, it doesn't have to be uh, football, it can be uh, baseball, right, Mariners and that kind of stuff. It can be high school, you may have a high school team you root for, it could be different sports, it could be hockey, soccer, basketball, volleyball, football, lacrosse, right? All those different things. We don't care which one. Just wear the jersey, and if people don't recognize it, you can explain what it looks like. But well, we're going to have some fun with that. And, uh, but that whole idea provides a great uh, launch pad for this morning's. Football has been described as a sport where 22 people are in desperate need of rest, and 50,000 people are in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> You've heard that before? And I think that's an appropriate metaphor for this morning as we look at our labor in Christ on this Labor Day weekend. So would you pray with me this morning? Let's give this to the Lord. Father, as we come this morning, we come in a lot of different places and a, and a lot of different spaces. And our worlds aren't the same. But uh, what you call us to is, and we're going to take a look at that and the advantages of being a participant as opposed to a spectator. And I don't know how that will land. Uh, Some of my friends do a lot. Some of my friends do too much. Some of my friends don't do anything. 
And Lord, that you know the difference in there. So color, highlight, walk among us in your spirit and point out uh, this morning what would be best from your side of the perspective and what you'd like to uh, accentuate. And uh, we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, when you look up here and we go back to this uh, saying here, we are his workmanship. In other words, God created something. He did work and he created, and it says he created us. He created people. And that workmanship was created in Christ Jesus for, and what's the word there? Good works. In other words, we are supposed to do something. We are supposed to be about something. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That This isn't a new idea to God. He planned this whole thing out, it says, before the foundation of the world. He knew what it looked like. He knew what the jobs were. He knew what he was going to call. And he knew who he was going to call. And he knew what he was going to call us to. And so this morning as we look in the fall, we're talking about this idea that God has created something in us. Now, when it says we were created for good works, it's, this is talking about the born-again moment in your life where the Holy Spirit enters your life and you're saved. He's, we are saved and then appointed for good works that are led and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's make sure we have this whole works thing straight. We'll just do a quickie here this morning. But when it comes to works earn my salvation, <clears throat> thanks for playing, right? No. You cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot be a good enough person. You cannot do enough good things. Now, nothing's wrong with good works. Nothing's wrong with nice deeds. They are welcome and beneficial. They're a good thing. But they don't earn you salvation. You can't work your way into heaven. You must place your faith in the finished work of Christ. That's what this verse is talking about. If you read Ephesians, the whole chapter, it highlights it. Now, finished work of Christ is kind of Christianese. What does that actually mean? If you were here, you come from a non-Christian background, you don't really know what that means. What does that actually mean, the finished work of Christ? What that means is that Christ came to earth. It says he was born of the Virgin Mary. Thus, he was fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, and in substitution for us, he died on the cross, And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. It is this faith, this faith in Jesus, the historical Jesus of Nazareth, by which salvation is obtained. Lord, I cannot do enough, be enough to be saved. Would you save me from my sin? That is what the Bible's talking about, allowing God for a finished work in your life. Now, that's important, but there's also, so works can't get us into heaven, but we still have to do good works. The good works, it's the uh, uh, cart before the horse thing, right? Get the faith part first. The faith pulls the works, not the other way around. But there's also another danger that says this, well, Jesus did it all, so, you know, really, therefore, there's nothing I have to do because it's all done, right? And, uh, That idea, faith without works, right? Thanks for playing. No, that doesn't work either. The idea here is that works should accompany. They should be the natural fruit, the natural outflow of us uh, coming to Christ. If you look in James chapter 2, he underlines or underscores this whole idea that faith without works is dead. And what is he saying there? What's he talking about? 
James explains that if you say you have faith, but there's no evidence. In other words, there's no life signs. There's no follow-through. Then you're fooling yourself. You're talking about faith. You don't have faith. Or you know intellectually in your head about faith, but you've never engaged in faith. James is saying is that when um, you become a believer, there should be evidence or works that come out of that. Why? Because when God saves somebody, he always has good works planned for those that he saves. You're not in a line and God takes the top front of the line. He's got stuff for them to do and the rest of the line you can sit there. He's got ideas for the whole line, right? You are not a secondary person in his equation. He's got stuff planned for you. So if you're saved, if you know him, he's got things that you should do. And that's what we want to talk about because this brings us to the main point this morning of the danger of being a spectator, of turning the Christian life into something that I just watch. Now, many of us don't do that. Many of us are plugged in here. Many of us are plugged in in the community outside the box. And so I'm looking at you. I can list off all the things you're doing. And so, uh, but we do want to look at the danger of being a spectator. If what James is saying is true, in other words, if, if that's a valid point, then we have to pay attention to and be alert to anything that tries to snooze us into a Christianity that says all I have to do in the Christian life is show up and listen. God should be happy. I came to church on Sunday. I threw him a bone. He should be pleased. I did what's expected of me. That's all I need to do. That is a danger. I don't have to take steps of faith. I don't have to be obedient. I don't have to actually follow through if I sense God asking me for something. I can sit on the sidelines and watch, and I'm good. I did what I'm supposed to do. The point being that we can't get lulled into the dangerous trap of spectatoritis. It produces some bad things. It produces uh, some stuff that's not good, not healthy. What kind of dangers are we talking about? Let me give you a couple that uh, I thought of. You may think of more, but here's a couple. First of all, if all I do is watch, I'm bored. The Christian life becomes incredibly boring if all I do is sit. It's like it seems to be happening for everybody else around me but me. It seems like there's nothing really going on. It's just really easy to get bored and distracted if I'm not really engaged in the Christian life. Why come to church and learn about something that I have no intention of doing? When you're at that stage then reading the Bible begins to feel like reading somebody else's mail. You ever read somebody else's mail? Right? It's weird because it's really not attached to you. And it's like, oh, well, whatever, chuck it, you know. Um, so what if it's their mortgage? It, right? It's not your mortgage. And, and it has that feel to it. And, and the Christian life has that feel to it. Um, where I'm reading somebody else's mail. You know, the attitude then becomes, can we just switch the channel there's nothing going on here. And we get to the place of going, gosh, this is just lulling me to sleep. Why? Because I'm not expecting to follow through. I'm not expecting to take any step. I don't come to church expecting God to speak. I'm just expecting to watch. And I'll grade God and the pastor on Sunday morning. And God, what was this C? And 
you know, but we were at church, so it was all good. That That's really danger. This one, though, I think is the more dangerous one is number two. This is the one that um, I think we've become and we don't even realize it. As the next few Sundays will prove, right, as we head towards football season, we are a nation of armchair quarterbacks, right? We critique every game. We critique all the plays. It is astonishing that Pete Carroll or John Schneider do not call us up and ask us for our NFL wisdom. John should call and say, hey, how would you put this team together, Ron? I mean, you seem to really know what you're doing. And, and Pete should come and say, oh, I was going to call that play. No? Okay, we'll call your play. I mean, right? We are really good armchair quarterbacks. And we are absolutely convinced that because we watch, we know. Stop and pause that for a second. We are convinced that because we watch, we know. And nothing could be further from the truth. Those who have played the game can tell people who have watched the game, you don't have a clue what it's like to be out on the field and what it takes to try and pull some of that stuff off. It is unbelievably how difficult it is. We act as if all of life should pray before us and then get our permission and seal of approval to proceed. We never really play the game. We ourselves never have had to expend any effort. Our biggest effort is to get up from the couch, go to the refrigerator and come back. We never have to risk anything. So it's all illusionary. It looks like we're doing something, but the truth is we're really not doing anything at all. I can imagine great effort and great results, but I don't ever have to be tested in it. But man, am I critical of everybody else's efforts. Slobs, wretches, ingrates, bums, sluggards, dolts. Right? If they were really any kind of football player, they'd do a lot better. If they were really a Christian church, they would clean that up. If the pastor was really a man of God, the sermons would carry a lot more punch and pop. Right? And we become a whole nation of critics. But we never have to do anything ourselves. That's the danger of being a spectator. Here's the third one. This is a danger of just being out of shape. Just like being out of shape physically so I can be out of shape spiritually. Like when I lay around forever and then uh, puff when I suddenly have to exert myself. I notice that's way easier now than in my 20s, right? All of a sudden I'm like, wow, I wasn't ready for this. I, I'm, I'm not in shape for this. Likewise, if I never engage spiritually, if I never engage in ministry, if I never actually do something, then I puff the same way spiritually. Whoa, this is way harder than it looks. I, I haven't done this for 20 years. I, whoa, I, I'm not sure. I, I, right? And you find yourself really winded. Because I never use them, my spiritual muscles are flabby. My mind can't remember scripture. My confidence flags sharing the gospel. And what I usually end up saying, it's in the Bible somewhere, just don't press me for where. Go ask Pastor Steve. Right? That's what we pay him for. Right? No, that, that doesn't work. We are the body. We are the church. We are to be engaged and we are to know our stuff. And so we can just get really out of shape, really sloppy, so that when someone with a need comes along, we actually aren't ready to actually help them or answer their question. 
And the, the fourth one is a big one, is we just get distracted. We're not really even watching. If I'm not doing any kind of ministry whatsoever, then there's this really, really good chance that I am also not watching. I'm not alert. I'm not tracking. I'm not paying attention to the things of the kingdom either. Um, you know, if you go to a, uh, like a Mariners game or a Hawks game, the stadiums are awesome these days, right? You can walk around Mariners game and never have to go to the game. There are all kinds of, right? There's all kinds of attractions. There's all kinds of food. There's all kinds of views outside the stadium. And you could be paying, to everything and paying attention to everything in the world except the game. And we've, we kind of get like that. And so what happens then is we're not alert. Jesus highlighted this in the parable of the ten virgins, remember? He said ten were wise. They thought, hey, maybe this isn't going to roll out quite the way we thought, so we'll, we'll make some preparations and be ready. The other five said, ah, whatever, we'll just bring what we're going to come. And when it actually came time for the event, the five who were wise, they were ready and it rolled and they rolled in. When the other five weren't, they suddenly had to scramble. And they had, to, they had to suddenly reroute and they had to go and try and get stuff. And by the time they got their act together, they missed the opportunity. It's really not a very good parable if you're in that situation. It says five were wise, five were foolish. The wise ones prepared and were watching. The foolish ones weren't ready. And here's the scary part. Nor did they have enough time to get ready. If God is telling us to get ready, we should be watching. Uh, we kind of go along and say, oh, it's fall. It just, I know how fall's going. It'll be this fall just like every other fall. No, nah, not necessarily. God could be up to amazing things this fall, and we will miss it if we're not watching. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, that's the title of the book, Not a Fan, highlights the issue that we are followers of Jesus, not fans of Jesus. We don't sit on the sidelines waving and cheering him on. We are engaged with him. We are followers. We're part of his team. He sees us as team. We don't sit on the side and watch. We find out where he wants us to engage, and we become kingdom servants. Now, you could be sitting there this morning and saying, well, that sounds risky. What would be the benefits? You know, what are the cost benefits, Mitch, if I, if I choose to get engaged, if I choose to do something here? Uh, let me give you seven benefits that I think are really valuable. Here's the first one. Here's the benefits of engaging in ministry, the works that Jesus has for us to do. Uh, Number one, you suddenly need faith. (laughs) It's no longer a theoretical construct. You suddenly need faith. Like, that's scary. Oh my gosh. Ah, I got to believe. Oh, I got to really, not kind of, I have to really believe. (laughs) Right? Now, we might do that on the inside because we want to look cool on the outside. But have you ever been at the moment in your faith where you go, ah! I have. I seem to live there. People ask me, how's it going? I go, challenging but good. They have no idea most of the time what I mean. Most of the time, you know what I'm doing? Ah! Right? It's faith. I am like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I don't know. I... Well, and that brings up the second thing. Why it's good to be engaged in ministry, the teacher always learns more than the student. One of the things, if you start doing something, you suddenly start becoming very attentive and you start learning. Matter of fact, if you like teach kids upstairs, you be ask any one of the teachers, they always learn more than the kids. We just did summer camp, right? We rolled all the kids through summer camp, had a fabulous time. You know who learns the most at summer camp? The adults who are serving. 
You want to walk around camp and you watch who's at rapt attention while the messages are going on. It's all the staff that are leading the tents and it's all the cooks and it's all the boat people. They are, and we have found that if God speaks to the adults, he'll grab the kids, right? Why? Because they're invested. It costs them time. It costs them money. It costs them effort. They are there. They're hoping God works. And as a result, they are listening. And as a result, because they're listening, they learn more than the people who aren't listening. And thus camp becomes this incredible place where God breaks out. The teacher always learns more than the student. Here's the third thing. When you engage in ministry and you no longer sit in the sidelines, prayer becomes essential, not optional. You tend to pray really good when you're, right? Help, Jesus, help. You ever prayed one of those prayers? That's called a freak-out prayer. Okay? Because you don't know what to do. You aren't even sure sometimes how to pray. One of the greatest prayers in the universe. God, I don't know even how to pray about this, but I better pray because you're asking me to do it and I have no idea what the next step is. That's an engaging prayer. Suddenly, prayer becomes really... And once you start praying like that, what you find out is prayer is really cool. Gee, this is awesome. Why don't I pray like this all the time? And you realize that it isn't necessary unless you're following the Lord and taking the steps into the works that he has you to do. Then, otherwise, prayer becomes optional. You don't need to pray if you're just sitting on the sidelines watching. If you're engaged, you tend to pray. Here's the other thing. The Word of God becomes the playbook. right? NFL guys, you know if they lose their playbook, right? they're fined and all this kind of stuff because that's really important. And NFL guys pay really close attention to the playbook this time of season. Why? Because if they don't, they just got cut. Right? You pay attention to that playbook like it is your life. Right? Well, here's the thing. The Bible is our life. It is the playbook. It's not good enough to say it's somewhere in the Bible. You have to know where it is. You have to read it. You have to read it like it's written to you because why? If you're taking steps of faith, suddenly it becomes pretty essential to know the playbook. I better start reading. Nobody else is going to read for me. I better start taking a look at this. A lot of us, by the way, have been reading through the Bible for the year. And of course, summer's probably thrown you way off and you've given up and you quit. You don't even remember where you left off. Pick it back up again. All right? Just find the spot, start reading again. You can still make it through the Bible if you are steady uh, reading from now till uh, Christmas. You can do it. So pick it back up, get back on it. Here's the other two things. Number one, Jesus. um, Oh, sorry, I skipped on here. Here's the cool thing. You find other people of like heart and passion. It's an amazing thing that when you engage in ministry, you usually engage with people you would never, ever pick as a friend. You look across the room and go, I'd never be that person's friend. I don't even like him. And all of a sudden you do a ministry thing there and go, wow, that is the coolest person in the world. I would have missed that whole thing if I had gone on first impressions. I would have missed entirely what that person's really about. Matter of fact, I cannot believe how similar that person and I are together. And it's one of those things where you go out and you have coffee, you spend three hours and it felt like five minutes. And you go, man, that was awesome. You ever have one of those? right? That was awesome. And you walk away just blessed. Why? Because you you found people of like heart and passion, right? They tend to clump together and that's a good thing. Last two, Jesus becomes the leader. And then instead of us telling him how it should go, we start asking him how he thinks it should go. 
a major difference there. Of a lot of our prayers are, Jesus, this is how you should have done it. Uh, why did last the storm last Saturday happen right before the Sunday in the park that we had planned months and months in advance? I have no idea. Jesus is the leader. He'll probably roll it out sometime. He may have been protecting us from something we don't even know. Right? Why? I don't know. But he's the leader. And I learned to trust his leadership. And when you're engaged, you do. If you sit on the sidelines, you don't. You become critical of his leadership and you start finding fault with his leadership. So it's in, that's one of the benefits of engaging uh, in ministry. And then the, the last one is you gain a kingdom focus. It's not about your stuff and your deal anymore. It's about the kingdom. What am I supposed to be doing? What's he doing this week? What's he doing in my neighborhood? What's he doing at work? What, where can I tie in a church? It becomes a kingdom perspective and it infiltrates everything that you, you think about. Colossians says this, And so from the day that we heard, Paul is writing to the Colossians church, he's talking about or hearing about their faith. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Amen? And we'd walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good, what's the word there? Work. There are things for us to do. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Likewise, this morning, again, needs to be an encouragement and a thank you for all of you here who have and are serving sacrificially. On behalf of Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the hours. Thank you for what you have done behind the scenes that nobody else knows you've done. We don't exist without you doing that. We, don't exi- we, can't, we can't be without you doing that. And, and again, we do this really well as a church. But it's fall again. We've got to re-engage. There's, there are going to be opportunities that will present themselves again. Right? Who knows how this fall is going to roll out? Who knows what is going to happen? Who knows what the Lord is going to do? But there will be unique opportunities this fall that you have never had before that the Holy Spirit is going to say, hey, I would like you to try this, to do that. <laughs> Me? Yes, you. Uh, get Matt Chu to do that. Matt's really spiritual. No, 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 no. You. Me? Yeah, You. He's going to want you to engage in maybe something you've never done before. By the way, think about this in the Christian life. How many of you have found yourself, since you've known Jesus, doing something you never thought you'd ever do before? Right? Look around the room. We're all over the place. God has a bigger picture of us than we have of ourselves. My whole dream for my life was to own an 80-acre farm in Sugar Bush, Wisconsin, and be on a tractor with my kids. That was my dream. I liked my dream. I thought it was a great dream. Okay? Jesus didn't think so. He had something else for me. And so I've been <laughs> for 35 years. How about you? Okay? If I have to, why don't you? So let's do it together. That's the most fun. So it's time to get back to it. It's time to engage. So as you're coming off of summer, as you're coming off all the scheduled things and that kind of stuff, my question this morning for you is, what is your job? What has Jesus asked you to do in faith, following him? What is it that you are supposed to engage in that he uh, has set up? 
I'm going to ask the guys to come forward and uh, begin to serve communion. If you guys would do that, that'd be appreciated. As they're doing that, I want you to think through this idea of what is your job. We are, uh, as mentioned, we are going to uh, send out another mailer this week, and it's, it's going out to 30,000 homes. And when we come next week, I'm going to uh, instruct us as a church how we need to respond uh, when the series starts on the 20th as a church family. All next week is going to be prepped for what happens on the 20th on. And we're going to look at what we need to do. Um, but as we come this morning, part of what the equation could be is you could be coming into the fall really tired. You could say, hey, you know what, Steve, I've done that faith thing before. And, you know, if I was really to be honest, not a lot happened. You know, not, I, I didn't see a lot of results from it. Let me jump down here and grab one too. Hang on, Tyler. Thank you, bud. I didn't see that much uh, take place, and so I, I've kind of uh, given up on that or kind of grown weary with that whole uh, deal. And I want to encourage this morning that as we come to communion, it's about staying faithful. It's about staying committed to the team, to Jesus' team that he's asked us to be on. If you look in Galatians chapter 6, there's these famous verses. It says, Let us not grow weary of doing good. The Bible says one of the reasons we grow weary of doing good is we watch other people sin and seemingly get away with it. And it doesn't feel like righteousness has done anything for me at all. Matter of fact, it looks like they're prospering. It looks like I'm suffering. This, I've gotten sold the raw deal. And therefore, I'm kind of tired of sacrificing or giving out because um, it doesn't seem like Jesus is keeping his word. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season. Notice due season, not your season. Due season. We will reap if we do not give up. There are people all over this country right now that are giving up on the gospel as we speak. Okay? They're giving up on it. They're walking away from it. They're saying it isn't worth it anymore. This verse challenges us, don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. It says, let's keep loving each other. Let's keep serving each other. Let's keep reaching out to other people who don't know the Lord because the Lord isn't done. He hasn't played all his cards yet. So when it comes to communion, uh, Scott did such a good job uh, last time we did communion of linking communion with community. Right? Remember that? Think community. Let me give you another word that ties to community that I think will make a lot of sense to you. Team. When you take communion, you are acknowledging Jesus. It is a privilege and an honor to be on your team. I want to be on your team. I want to engage in the good works you have for me. I want to walk away from my sin. That's why when it comes to communion, it always says examine yourself. And the idea is you recognize what sin, you move away from it, you embrace the stuff that God has for you, and you let that stuff go, you die to it. Why? Because we want to be on Jesus' team. You know, Jesus had a team of 12, and we're pretty good at pointing out all their faux pas, right? They... Uh, they biffed it in certain places. 
And actually one of them didn't even want to play team. One of them actually betrayed the team, betrayed the leader. Didn't go too well for him. But the other 12 got it and they became to this day the greatest team in the history of the world that the world has ever seen. They're called the 12 disciples. The world has never gotten over them, never gotten over the impact of that team. God is in the business of raising up teams. And he wants teams to excel, just like teams on the football field or teams on the basketball court want to excel. He wants teams to excel. He calls those teams what? The church. The body of Christ. And so when we take communion, we are reaffirming we're on his team. Jesus says, remember what it costs to put the team together. He said, this is my body. He says, broken for you. He went through it for us. He said, eat this in memory of me. The cup. Jesus said, I will never drink this again until I return. But he says to us, keep drinking this until I return. In other words, I'm not going to drink of it till I come back so I fulfill the promise. But you keep drinking it to remind yourself of the promise. To remind yourself you're on my team. To remind yourself, I have not just thrown idle words. I am coming back for you. You're on my team. He says, drink this in memory of me. How are we going to do that? How does it work? This next song will tell us how we do that.